this is going to be an interesting session, uh, and I'm very, I'm just so pleased that General Hayden would join us, and I welcome my colleagues, Seth Jones and Heather Connolly. Uh, each of them have written interesting books in the last, uh, well, half year, uh, recent months. They've been just out in the last couple of months. Uh, Mike Hayden's book is The Assault on Intelligence, and, uh, and what I'd like to, each of you to do, Seth's book was on covert action. It was a fascinating history of how we used covert activities to communicate to the Polish people during the occupation and to create uh, the antibodies to occupation. It was a very interesting book, and Heather wrote about a year and a half ago that most popular publication CSIS has ever had called the Kremlin Playbook, and she is now working on uh, Kremlin Playbook 2, which is another Ar Ar Schwarzenegger kind of series, <laughs> I guess. I'm Bach. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, so, but I'd like to ask each of you just to kind of briefly reflect on your books, just to get the audience together in a common space of thinking here. Mike, let's start with sure. you. So I, I described mine. I didn't use this extended metaphor in the book, but I have for book discussions afterwards, and I wish I had thought about it earlier. Um, it's, it's kind of describing a three-layer cake, all right? And this is all, it's all about an age of lies, a post-truth world, all right? And so layer one is broadly our society, American society, and some, some other elements uh, of the West, but not all. We, we have drifted in the direction of a post-truth culture, post-truth, post-truth, was the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year for 2016. Okay. And it is broadly described as decision-making based less on fact, data, and evidence, and more on feeling, preference, emotion, loyalty, tribe, grievance. And I, I'm seeing some folks nod, and you know, I, I think we see good evidence of that uh, around the United States. I, um, spent a lot of time talking to folks like yourselves in the national capital area. So as for research of the book, I had my brother fill the back end of a sports bar in Pittsburgh last August uh, with people who think about things differently than I do. He overachieved, all right? Um, and we, we just had a candid conversation. I, I grew up with many, some were relatives. They all had the same life experience as young people. and. Um, it, it, it's just different. Now, there, there, you know, a whole bunch of globalization, wins in your face, wins at your back, uh, economic dislocation, macro effects and micro, I mean, I, I get all of that. But you still had an awful lot of the foundations of the arguments coming at me were less data-derived and more on feeling, emotion, preference, tribe, loyalty, grievance. Uh, the second layer, of the cake is, is frankly a, a candidate and a president who brilliantly recognized the first layer. All right. And by the way, the first layer gets almost all of its news through social media. And the candidate recognized that, campaigned via social media, exploited the, the drift towards post-truthism, and, and frankly, as president, uh, I, I think by a lot of what he does and a, a whole bunch of what he says, uh, drives us further in the direction of non-evidence-based uh, decision-making, uh, simply using the, the power of the bully pulpit uh, to drive wedges, again, non-fact-based, whether you want to talk about uh, Mexican uh, migration rates or the safety of Syrian refugees 
or whether or not Barack Obama wiretapped Trump Tower, um, he exploits the reality in layer one. Layer three are the Russians coming in over the top, recognizing really quite in, in, insightfully, recognizing layers one and, and layer two, and then using their power within social media and, and other tactics, techniques, and procedures to, to worsen the things we have here in order to disable, divide, divert uh, American power, American influence, and American, American attention. Um, when I scale it, all right, uh, the Russians are the top 20%. The, the base 80% of this issue, this problem, is homegrown. Uh, they, they tried the same techniques against the Norwegians. It doesn't work because the, the Norwegians don't have layer one and, and, and layer two. Now, there's, there's a lot, lot more to be said, but that, that's fundamentally the issue. And then, John, I, I drive home the point then, how do fact-based institutions and look at the high friction points of the current administration. Intelligence, law enforcement, the courts, science, scholarship, and journalism. Those are all the flashpoints. And why are they the flashpoints? Well, they can all be imperfect. Sometimes some of them can be corrupt. But they're all fact-based institutions. And their only safe haven for their long-term survival is a commitment to the truth. And now, game on. In, in the three-layer universe that I just described. Fascinating. Uh, it's a very good introduction, actually, for Yousef, because we had the shoe was on the other foot. We were trying to bring truth. So why don't you share with us uh, just a brief precis of your book? Sure. Uh, I'll take the uh, third layer of what Mike talked about and bring us back to the 1980s. Uh, what my book, and it's due out in September of 2018, uh, looks at is the period when President Ronald Reagan comes into office and uh, his team looks across the globe and sees what is a very aggressive, offensive um, element of Russian-Soviet activity, what, what is called, certainly at that time, although in many ways uh, is called today as well, active measures. And the initial part of the, of the um, Reagan administration's efforts are to diagnose the problem, understand what the Russians are trying to do to us globally, what they're trying to do to us um, in, in our homeland because they were involved in a pretty offensive program to provide assistance to political parties in the US, Communist Party, nuclear freeze movements in the United States, um, and then to uh, put together everything from a strategy down to tactics in how to deal with it. So this is a case where we have an administration that comes in and designs a series of national security decision directives, 75, 32, and others, that are designed to create an offensive strategy, series of strategies, against the Soviets globally, uh, particularly on the information campaign. One of the things that's interesting when you look at, at Reagan administration, national security strategy, is how much information warfare becomes a key element of military, diplomatic, development uh, and other types of instruments of power, hard and soft power. And so what I look at is one component of that, and this is a, a covert action program that is designed to assist solidarity in Poland, which uh, was struggling in 1982 just to survive because uh, the Poles had declared martial law. 
And what the agency does here is conduct an offensive program to make sure that they have the capabilities, not with weapons, but with information. So they've got duplicator machines. They have ink uh, for ink cartridges, paper, um, so they can conduct an information campaign inside of Poland to get information out about what is going on inside the country, in the broader uh, Soviet bloc, and then in the Soviet Union itself. So what's interesting is here we have a case, maybe unlike today, where we have administration diagnose the problem, the Russian problem, and then establish an offensive, aggressive, proactive information campaign to deal with it. And again, I'm looking specifically at the Polish program, but it's, it's kind of the, it's one case in a broader, I think a broader campaign that's of, in, that's, that's of interest. Heather, tell us a bit about Kremlin Playbook. Well, thank you. Um, and I know many of you have heard this, so I'll be very short. So in uh, 2015, we took a statement that uh, a group of Central European leaders had written in a letter to President Obama in the first few months of his administration. They warned the president in an open letter that Russia was using overt and uh, covert economic means as well as disinformation to change the transatlantic orientation of NATO members. And I wanted to prove that hypothesis. Could, in fact, economics change the political orientation of a NATO or an EU country? And so our partners, we have a wonderful Bulgarian think tank called the Center for the Study of Democracy. We did two things. We took five case study countries in Central and Eastern Europe, and we tried as best we could with open source information to sort of crunch the numbers and see how much Russian economic influence existed in their countries over a 10-year period. And then we tried to diagnose exactly what were the shifts and the changes in their political orientation. Were they due to that economic influence? Were they not? What we found in our conclusions was if a country had over 12% uh, of gross domestic product that could be traced to Russian economic influence, you had, that country had a substantial challenge of being greatly influenced by Russia. So in the case of Bulgaria, one of our case study countries, over 22% of their GDP is Russian sourced. Now, if you look at Bulgaria and you look at their foreign direct investment, you see the Netherlands is the, the number one foreign direct investor. That's fantastic. Who could, who could be, uh, have a problem with that? The problem is it's because Luke Oil is incorporated in the Netherlands and it appears on the books as Dutch investment but it's actually not. And then what we saw, how those investment patterns, look, patterns looked, of course, energy, which one would know because of Russia's strong um, energy influence uh, across Europe, but we also noticed in media, media companies, we noticed real estate, in big infrastructure projects. That was where Russian economic influence concentrated itself. And then as we watched, the economic influence started to purchase the political influence key legislators, funding uh, NGOs that were very sympathetic to the Kremlin's interests. Um, and, and then we started over that 10-year period seeing where uh, very pro-Russian politicians started becoming the Minister of Interiors or the head <coughs> of the anti-corruption bureaus, which would prevent uh, any examination of perhaps uh, sole source deals or, or lack of transparency of those deals. And we watched this happen in uh, five case study countries 
Greece, Latvia, Hungary, Slovakia, Bulgaria, and then uh, a non-NATO but uh, an aspiring EU country, Serbia. And we released this a month before the US presidential election. And what it looked like was sort of a template, if you will, of how economic influence can gain political influence. We didn't know we'd be a bestseller at the time, but uh, you know, for me, I direct our European analysis. It's like having a front row seat of watching Russia's laboratory of active measures within Europe. So we, we're so uh, successful, we've decided to do uh, the Kremlin Playbook 2. We're calling it the Enablers Edition. Um, we're now, uh, we're looking at six countries, uh, the Czech Republic, Romania, and Montenegro, our newest NATO member, and that's very similar to the work we did under the first Kremlin playbook. But we're also dedicating ourselves to three case study countries that kept appearing in the, the first Kremlin playbook, the Netherlands, Austria, and Italy. And what we're seeing is what our British colleagues are also discovering. There is now an entire industry around supporting Russian economic influence. And they may not be the target of the influence themselves, but they further that. So a uh, preview of coming attractions in early 2019, we'll be producing the Kremlin Playbook 2, the Enablers edition. Could I, um, I think it was Mark Twain that once said something like, you know, Truth can get halfway around the world before, or I mean, uh, a lie can get halfway around the world before truth can put on its shoes. And um, it, we seem to be struggling with, with a problem where a propagandist has only the test of did it work? Was it efficacious? Did it create confusion? Whereas governments have to respond by validating the truth. And Mike, you talked about how the foundations of American society are built on that. Right. So what do we do? Because if, as you said, 80% of the problem is us, and we seem now no longer to be preoccupied with truthfulness in our own domestic discourse. Yeah. How is that playing out here? How did, and how did we use that? So when I gave the three layer cake here, you, you realize that layer one and two, layers one and two are, are actually rejection of enlightenment values. You know, since the 17th century, most of Western, you know, we've had our dark moments, but most of Western civilizations, evidence-based, uh, theory, uh, hypothesis, test, observation, adjustment, humility in the face of complexity, all right? And, and this, this flies in the face of it. Now, what's really telling, and I, I, try, to, I try to point it out in, in the book, you know, that should be troubling for everyone in the Western uh, cultural tradition. It should be really troubling for the United States because our foundation documents are written by Enlightenment scholars. The, the, the ideals of the Enlightenment, you know, the, 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 the reality that truth matters and we instinctively pursue truth is imbued throughout the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And so if that's eroding, it has a greater, more immediate, faster effect on the, the United States. Than it does than it does others. So it's a, a particularly uh, difficult problem. So so what you've got uh, that, that makes it easier for those who want to manipulate us is, is again back to the you know not evidence but grievance and emotion and so on. Um, all three layers can can reflect uh, the reality that if I can make it trending, if I can make it popular it is an adequate departure point, as if it were reality, for what I say and for what I do. And without 
you know, the, the president plays a, a big role in the book, but I, but I do talk about him as effect, not cause. Uh, but I, I, I tell one anecdote where uh, John Dickerson is, is interviewing him uh, for CBS on uh, Face the Nation. And uh, it's a routine interview in the Oval, chair versus chair here. And, and then Dickerson begins to press on wiretapping Trump Tower. And the president gets uncomfortable with it, kind of gets up and walks and plants himself behind the resolute desk. I mean, clearly the body language is, we're done. But Dickerson stalks and pursues him and says, what evidence do you have? What evidence do you have? And, and the president responds with, a lot of people agree with me. People were saying, a lot of people were saying. And, 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 and Dr. Hamry, that's what sets us up so that a foreign power, if it wants to manipulate us, all right, creates things that are, number one, number one, they don't have to create the issue, okay? The, the issue is, is homemade in the United States. Yeah, so they pick up issues, generally from the alt-right, but it doesn't have to be. They take up issues already written in, in the American patois, all right? And, and then they multiply the issue uh, through social media and botnets to excite the discussion, and then they drive the discussion to, to both ends of the extremes. Uh, we call the NFL take a knee. Before the president got back from Huntsville on Air Force One, Russian bots were alive with three hashtags, NFL take a knee and take the knee. Trouble, trouble with translation on the last one, all right? Um, and they were playing both ends. They were playing the patriotic end and the, and the free speech end. And, and, and so, the, the long-term healing is down here. Okay, they get our act together with regard to civil political discourse and fact-based discussion, right? There are short-term things we can do, however, uh, to kind of kill the pain for a while, reduce the effect, and we can get into that, I think, as we discuss this. Yeah, well, let's, well, let's come back to it. Uh, Seth, please. Yeah, two, two, two issues. One is, um, uh, to pick up on one of Mike's points, um, uh, you know, if we go back to the 1980s where, you know, the situation was slightly different, um, but I wanted to read part of what, um, th this is a declassified U.S. assessment uh, that's available online now, um, which I'm going to replace the word Soviet, which is in here with Russian, and you'll see interesting similarities here, that Russian active measures are poorly understood and infrequently countered systematically by Western or other governments. As a result, the Soviets have been able, the Russians have been able to go about their large-scale active measures quite freely to the detriment of Western for foreign policy inter interests and generally without a response. The Russians are willing to accept the risk of considerable political embarrassment as a consequence of active measures operations. They apparently believe that controversy caused by the exposure of active measures in the past didn't have a significant adverse impact, so they're willing to be caught on various occasions. But what they'd like to do is do things like, quote, discredit uh, and weaken U.S. intelligence efforts, discredit and weaken uh, U.S. allies and alliances. I mean, we see similar intentions. One of the things that I found quite interesting, at least in the past, is how historical U.S. governments in the face of these kinds of efforts have done a range of activities to push back and highlight that information publicly. So if we look at Reagan, for example, what Reagan did, among other things, is establish an interagency active measures working group. 
That working group was designed specifically to bring all source intelligence together to identify what the Soviets were doing across the globe and push out publicly an explanation of what they were doing and uh, an explanation of why they were doing it. Um, they also have, I've got, you know, if you look in 1982, 1983, large volumes of um, congressional testimony that uh, administration officials went to the Hill, including CIA case officers operating uh, or, or testifying under cover names because they were still uh, undercover, but testifying about what active measures were, uh, what they were designed to do, and then identifying very specific cases of what forgeries were, what examples of. So an active effort by the US to identify and unpack what we were up against. And then at the same time, to, to create um, and devise a strategy that was also offensive and that was also on the information side. And one of the things that, you know, when you're dealing with authoritarian regimes, whether it was the Soviets at that point, whether it's with, with the Russians today, is they are clearly vulnerable. So, uh, societies that try to keep information uh, from their populations to control the internet are vulnerable in many instances to techniques that open up that information, uh, that are designed to give populations from those countries access to technical means to see internet sites that generally are shut down. Uh, so there are opportunities in a, I mean, this is, this is one of the issues. So Reagan is committed to taking the democratic values that Mike is talking about and uh, exposing our adversaries and their populations to what it means to live in a democratic society and access to the free press. I mean, I, I, I don't think we're there yet in creating that kind of offensive capability, partly because we haven't done it internally right now. Well, Dr. Hammer, you challenged me after the Kremlin playbook came out. You said, okay, we'll write the transatlantic playbook. Tell me how we're going to counter this. And so we came up with sort of three ideas, and I think they pull the threads all together. Three steps, identify, stabilize, and mobilize. Identify, exactly what to your research and your book, Seth. You have to identify it. You have to explain over and over again to the American people, this is what's happening. This is what you need to understand. We need to enhance your news literacy. You need to treat things that come in social media with some skepticism. Is this a site that I trust? How do I read this? How do I understand this? So the, the, the identify is so critical. For me, the Kremlin playbook is the stabilize. And what I mean, when we talk about truth, I translate truth into transparency. And this is where we have to be very transparent about financing, how it comes into our country, how, how whether it's Russia or China or other uh, economic adversaries potentially, they know our system. It can buy, things can be bought, things can be um, understood and influenced, whether uh, through uh, PR firms, legal firms, what have you. We have to insist on the transparency of our own institutions. This is on us. This isn't Russia. This is our own institutions and our own laws and heightening our transparency. That's what democracies do the best. Authoritarians hide. Uh, democracies are open and transparent. We have to sit, insist on that. 
And finally, mobilize. Again, we'll come back to Reagan. That's the offensive capability. We don't have an offensive plan to, because we're having a crisis of confidence in our own politics, our own economic opportunities. This is what's missing, and this is what made Reagan and solidarity. Uh, remember uh, when we prayed in our schools for those captive nations, we held them high. We focused like a laser beam. We were the good guys. And this was our system and our truth. We had an offense. And that's what's been sorely lacking here uh, as we face this great challenge. It's not going to end. It's exploiting the divisions and the weaknesses that we present to it every day. Mike, you said that you thought there were some things we could do in the short yep. term. It's not, we can't repair American society overnight, but what, what can we do yeah. in the short term? So, so let, me, let, me, let me do the one big idea first and I'll, I'll jump onto it. And, and so the problem we have right now, all right, is that an awful lot of American society does not believe we are the good guys. And that, that's the vulnerability that we have in the, in the first and second layer. The, the accusation of uh, corrupt uh, institutions, corrupt people, corrupt processes, and so on. So while, while we fix the macro issue, what are some micro things? So uh, in, in essence, you know, I'm the intel guy, so I'm working up here on the third layer, okay? Um, uh, number one, it, it, there's no earthly reason why political uh, advertisements uh, in the digital world should not be as controlled as they are in broadcast media. Number one. Uh, number two, it is within our ability to, to a degree of certainty that's sufficient, all right, to have our, 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 our social media platforms identify when we're being tickled by a human being and when we're being tickled by a botnet, all right? I mean, there, there are patterns that can be detected. You probably, you know, get to the 95, 98% confidence level, but shut off the botnets so that the, the ability of others to manipulate us is, is reduced, not, not eliminated, but reduced. A third, since you know, uh, one of the core problems down here in the base level is how you get your news, right? We, well, we are trained as a society to deal with news based on our life experience, to deal with news coming at us in a digestible stream from curated sources. None of us are living in that world anymore but all of our habits of, of accepting our news are based on that world, so they're inadequate uh, for uncurated news coming at us in an overwhelming volume. So I suggest in the book uh, something like Rotten Tomatoes ratings for, for news sites, all right? And I, I make the point, you know, a movie gets 30 on Rotten Tomatoes, I may still go see it, but I know what I'm getting into, all right? So, so we're not suppressing movies or, or news sites. But you can evaluate the news, not the news story. It's not about suppression. It's not about free speech. But you can, with a generally agreed approach by people who would have some authenticity and some legitimacy, rate the news sites on a variety, on a variety of characteristics, like how long have they been there? Do we know who owns it? Do we know who, do we know who funds it? Um, do they generally report original work or just retreaded stories and so on. So I, I did a version of this on Bill Maher about a month ago, and as I'm getting off stage, my, my iPhone's lighting up from emails from Steve Brill, who already has a project underway called NewsGuard that he hopes to have up and functioning before the next uh, midterm elections that does exactly that. Very simple, nine, 10 categories, red, yellow, green. And so you have a place to which you can refer 
to give you some sense as to the authenticity of the crazy story coming at you. So those, those are all within reach. Uh, more broadly, uh, and this was suggested earlier about President Reagan saying, all right, everybody huddle up, we gotta go do something. We have not had that dynamic with regard to the Russians. Remember Dan Coates up there about two months ago in the worldwide threat briefing with all the three letters behind him? Have you been directed by the president to da 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 da? No, I have not. No, 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 no. All right? And so every one of those guys up there, uh, Paul Nakasone up there, Gina of Langley, they will tell you, oh no, we're, we're playing our position. We're working on this hard. All right? but, but I compare what the Russians did in 2016. I, I get all the differences, but bear with me. I compare it a bit to 9-11. Right? An attack from an unexpected source against a previously unappreciated weakness. And that, in order to fix that, you don't fix it by everybody playing position, because everybody was playing position. And it, this hit a seam. And so you've got to go extraordinary. And that requires the president in our system Trust me, it requires the president to go extraordinary. So you, you then develop extraordinary um, statutes, extraordinary policy, extraordinary organizations, extraordinary resources in order to defend us against this. We have not done that, all right? And so I, I, I do fear, not, not, not for the vote count, all right, which, I, which I, we've probably done enough and I don't think they'd mess with because that's a nuclear weapon and I think would, would respond in a way that they wouldn't appreciate. But I do not think we have a whole of government and certainly not a whole of society response to what the Russians did in 15 and 16, and so I fear it going forward. So that's what I would do. I would go extraordinary. Right. We went extraordinary to count three million ghost voters who weren't ghost voters, we put the vice president in charge of it before it was dissolved, but we have not gone extraordinary for something that really did happen. Mike, I'm going to, uh, I, I strongly agree with everything you've just said, but I, but I do want to press something to bring out yep. an important dimension and to get my colleagues to react, because you, you very quickly said this, this website would be done by someone that had uh, authenticity and credibility. Yep. And we're at a time right now when Americans fundamentally are questioning the traditional structures of authenticity and legitimacy. Yeah. Where, who's going to do this rating? And so how I, do I, we think yeah, about that? I, I do, by, by the way, NewsGuard, a couple clicks, you can read all the background, you can see the categories, you can see the spotlights for some sample. Uh, they picked RT just out of the air, for example, as uh, one they wanted to evaluate, all right? Most, mostly red, okay? <laughs> okay. Um, these, these are um, seasoned journalists. All right, who, who have life experience in this. And, and, and Dr. Hamry, I get it. You know, the issue here is distrust of the institutions of government, but you've got to start somewhere. Yep. All right, and so you do this and let it over time prove its worth. There is probably somebody out there complaining about somebody trying to guide me to the right movies when Rotten Tomatoes started, but I actually think it's pretty good, and I refer yep. to it. Heather, you've, you've looked at this from a European standpoint. Yeah, and just to, to pull on uh, General Hayden's comments, I mean, in some ways what we missed after the 2016 election, we missed our own 9-11 commission. Uh, and in, in absence of presidential leadership, what would have been great is a, a very high bipartisan congressional mandate to change the structure of how we go about doing this. 
um, and in, in the hopes of an absence, again, of, of presidential leadership for the foreseeable future on this, how do we restructure ourselves to get a hold of this? And it's an, it's an inside game and then it's outside. It's inside, and this is where, again, the exploit, exploitation of the weaknesses, a lot of this is domestic where CIA and uh, our foreign agencies yeah. cannot yeah go into, so they can't adequately warn. And our domestic agencies have real important barriers for what they can do, which is why we need new structures to either address that those seams that Russia and other adversaries are, are trying to get uh, uh, in the middle of. So again, it is about rebuilding trust and credibility and in institutions. And I think that can only happen on three, based on three, it has to be bipartisan. Our partisanship now is a weakness that our adversaries are exploiting beautifully. It has to be bipartisan. It has to be transparent. No more backroom deals. We have to expose uh, our, the changes to our institution, what, what has prevented them from doing this. And then it has to be rebuilding trust at the community level. It's no longer sufficient to send, heaven forbid, an expert that's one strike from the swamp, from Washington, second strike, to go out and tell someone, this is really important, you have to pay attention to this. This is going to have to be a, a, a conversation of trust with community leaders, church leaders. Again, the moral authority, who do you listen to? Who do you trust? And let's have a conversation with that person to regrow that. It's going to take a long, it took us a long time to get where we are today in the distrust department. We're going to have to rebuild that. It's a national conversation, but it will take a new structure, new leadership. And as I, I'm going to turn to Seth, it is that moral leadership and that clarity that, again, Ronald Reagan did personify in this challenge. He declared the challenge, the moral response to it, and then a relentless pursuit by all government agencies to address it. Yeah, just, just one quick issue on this, and this, this goes back to your point about uh, 9-11. I mean, one of the things when you look at how the government reorganized itself after 9-11 was it created a range of bodies, including the National Counterterrorism Center. Yep. It, it put up the issue of counterterrorism on a major level and then partially organized itself to deal with that. I mean, we, the, the administration, and I think fairly, argued in the most recent national security strategy and national defense strategy that in addition to counterterrorism, we have to face the threat from interstate, interstate adversaries like the Russians, right. the Chinese, the Iranians, North Koreans. Where we're, I think what we're missing right now is or organizing ourselves around that threat right now, including across the interagency to deal with that, creating, creating some of the bodies that we did to pull us together after 9-11 to deal with it. I th and I, you know, this may take some time, but I, I think that is, if, we take, if we're to take this threat seriously, we have to treat it, I think, at the same level that we did post 9-11. Yeah. I, I tell one story in the book. Um, so I'm, I'm down in Texas in the 90s, take over the Air Intelligence Agency. I come out of Europe where the war was in the Balkans. It was purely medieval. So I get, I get to Texas, and the Air Force's, my unit, my command, is cutting edge on the cyber thing, all right? And, and an awful lot of the things we thought there are now American doctrine, all right? So the, the, the folks did well and they educated me. We, I, I, I describe Dr. Amory in the book, this argument we had down there, uh, of wh whether we were in the cyber business or whether we were in the information dominance business. And since we have a cyber command now, you know how this works out, right? But we had, we had this great debate 
And we finally decided that we were in the cyber business, which is a subset of the information dominance business, because this was hard enough, all right? And really, in our political culture, you really can't play much over here without pretty early on hitting your shins on the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment and a whole bunch of political cultural questions. So we stayed over here. The Russians, under General Garasimov, went to door number two. And so one of our challenges is to doctrinally reconceive what it is the Russians are doing because the lenses we have and use are insufficient and incomplete for, for the Russian effort. Back to, you have to go extraordinary. Okay, let me open this up. I think we have microphones. Do we have people with microphones? Okay, let's let's get. Uh, we got a question right over here. In the, yeah, right. Halfway down on your left. Thank you. Identify yourself, please. No lectures. I'm going to cut you off if I get a lecture. It's not that much. So this is more directed at General Hayden. In your first book, you discuss a lot about saying how we needed. We did a lot to counter the things that happened. We made some very extraordinary entries and played to the edge. Do you think to a degree our level of secrecy and the things that we did so far are now coming back to bite us? A lot of what's happened, a lot of what's come out in the various commissions, reports, the politicization of the measures we used, do you think that helps sort of foment that distrust in our institutions? It's, in okay, we got the question. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's part of the broader pattern of distrust in institutions, all right? And, and I, you know, I, I think the record shows that certainly the way intelligence has been perceived may, may have added to it. I, I, maybe it's just my own lens, right? I, I generally think the, the problem intelligence has is a subset of the larger societal problem, that we, we were swept along Okay, we probably contributed, but we were swept along by the broader distrust. So even when we went out there and tried to explain some things, uh, th there was, again, this residual distrust of all things from the government, and intelligence was, was, was part of it. Uh, I say in the first book that the antidote to this is more transparency, all right? And to and tell people earlier on what it is you're doing more, more robustly, more more richly, and then I quickly add, and don't kid yourself, that's gonna shave points off of effectiveness, but we're not gonna be able to get to do it, you're not gonna give us the license, the validity to do it, unless you're comfortable, more comfortable with it than you were. So, both things are working. Well, right down here, uh, yeah, please. And, uh, please identify yourself. Hi, so this question is more directed for Ms. Conley. In regards to, uh, your Kremlin game plan. I'm just wondering how much of the responsibility is on private companies such as Facebook and other social media platforms to filter the disinformation? How much of the responsibility is on the government to combat what is being posted on these sites? Thank you. Well, maybe I'll share that answer with, the, with General Hayden. So what we studied in our research was how actually uh, in Europe, Russian economic influence was purchasing the media outlets which were then producing the, um, the messaging that was very supportive to the Kremlin. So we looked at it as a commercial transaction. So when there's transparency on, on beneficial ownership, who owns what, 
uh, shareholders, who was controlling that. That's that important transparency. And then I'll, I'll take the same example to, to Facebook. There needed to be a lot more transparency of how Facebook shares its data, uh, who was providing the sites, and now because of exposure to the problem, we are slowly uh, and the congressional pushing getting to that uh, transparency. That's what, and I, I sort of, again, generating to your point, it may reduce market share or effectiveness of intelligence agencies, but if we are not transparent, we cannot have trust and we have to educate based on that transparency. There's so much distrust and conspiracy-minded theories. We have to open ourselves up to that transparency. So for social media, it is absolutely, and, and they would need to do it for their own shareholders to rebuild trust that their data is well managed and that people that are using these wonderful tools, and they are wonderful tools, but to understand they come with responsibility and that we all have to be good stewards of responsibility, whether we share our data on these platforms and how the companies manage their yeah, it, data. Yeah, it's probably worse than that. Um, this is this, this, all, all correct, and that's the protection of privacy and data and, and following the rules, and we're all aware of what it is we signed up for. Okay? But beyond that, it may be the basic business model and the basic algorithm of social media sites. And I did a, I did a lot of work on this, and, and I, I'm, I'm not the expert, but I talked to a lot of people who are. The, the fundamental business model of, of Facebook and, and similar social media sites is to keep you on the site. All right? I mean, the return on investment is the number of clicks. All right? And so the site knows you as, at least as well as you know yourself. And so it will present to you things when you go in there to make the original query, things that it knows by and large agree with your tendencies. Otherwise, you go away. The longer you stay, the more the algorithm drives you to, more, to articles that more dramatically agree with your original premises. The, the algorithm actually drives you away from the center and into the darker corners of your own self-created ghetto. Uh, Zainab Tufekci is a wonderful scholar. I, I saw, met her and talked with her at a meeting in Sweden, Turkish by birth, North Carolinian by choice. She says the basic business model of social media sites is the same one as Doritos. Okay? You can't eat just one. Because when you eat, when you eat one, it gives you salt and fat, which creates a craving for Salt and fat, and it drives us this way. Um, Roger McNamee was an original and early investor and certainly an early mentor of Mark Zuckerberg. He has been prolific in the last six months writing about mm -hmm. it's the basic algorithm. It's not, it's not just the other stuff. So, so if, yeah, if I can just add one, one related issue. You know, we, we've seen some of these sites including Facebook and YouTube, make progress, and they did it a few years ago on, on uh, child pornography, where they went offensive in taking down, it violated their terms of service. They went offensive in taking down sites, identifying them, devising algorithms that identified many of them before they even went live, and then they were taken down. Um, you know, with a lot of government push, yeah. there's been some, uh, there's been some progress on the counterterrorism front. There's been more sites taken down on Facebook, more uh, YouTube videos taken down, algorithms um, that have been put together. Uh, the Jigsaw, for example, which uh, has done a pretty good job 
combining several different private sector companies of establishing methods like the redirect method, which when individuals go in and try to go to Syria, for example, they're redirected towards nonviolent means. So these are algorithms that have been, and, and very smart people on the tech side that have spent time trying, but it took a lot of government push, including at the White House level, to, to do this. Um, you'd need a lot of government right. push that doesn't exist right now, right. I think, along some of these lines to do it. And I think that's where we're sort of breaking down, yeah. is without that, as we've seen on some of the other issues, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. And if I could humbly suggest, it would be helpful if the news industry wouldn't treat a tweet as news. <laughs> uh, I'm so sick and tired. If somebody tweets something, who gives a broody toot? You know? Okay. Yeah, right, right back here. Yeah, stand up there. Yeah, you, you were the 10 coach. Oleg Birkulov, Media Group, uh, Business Baltic Media Group from Riga, Latvia. So, Ms. Conley, you mentioned Latvia, it's interesting. Uh, uh, so, the question is, what is the influence of uh, Russia on uh, uh, Latvian mass media? Uh, and maybe you can compare it with American influence on uh, Latvian mass media. And I have to tell you, I write articles for uh, Russian language uh, media in Latvia. And uh, none of my articles were ever distorted or edited. It was 100% printed. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, just very quickly, in, in fact, of the, of the five case study countries, Latvia actually uh, demonstrated a, a lot of uh, good resistance and resilience to Russian influence, particularly because on the, they had an independent anti-corruption prosecutor. It didn't actually, it was very unusual. Usually, anti-corruption prosecutors fall under the purview of parliament for oversight. This individual was actually separated, which meant that the parliamentarians were unduly influencing uh, this individual. And it actually helped Latvia's resilience. The concern about Latvia's media, it's a very small media market, uh, as you can imagine. And uh, it is uh, very much the, in the, the Baltic, the, the three states together. A lot of Russian purchased uh, media space, which in a very small media market, when there is a, a lot of dominance of Russian ownership of that media market, it is very difficult. Uh, for, for other news to come in. And what we found with Russian information, it's really cleverly done. It, it, music, wonderful music, wonderful culture, slip in a history story that skews that Latvia was, uh, was, was not occupied. Latvia uh, it had a different skew. So it's very subtle. Uh, it's very powerful. I'm glad you've had a very positive experience that there's been no altering of your, of your articles. But it is, uh, it's certainly something very worrisome. We have less of a concern about, obviously, Russian ownership uh, in our media market. But the transparency of who owns what media, the local level, uh, at the state level, national level, that's important for us, too, to understand uh, the ownership restrictions of that media market as well. So some of that's good, good uh, work for us as well in transparency. There's a lady in the back right in the last row. Uh, yep. uh, Kathy Cosman. Um, I was wondering how any of you would react to two trends in Russian disinformation or propaganda, whatever you want to call it. One is saying things are not perfect in Russia but they're worse or just as bad everywhere else. That's one trend. And the other is somewhat in an opposite direction in favor of traditional values, not only espousing the 
Moscow Patriarchate, obviously, but also being against abortion and against gay rights. Thank you. I can take a Heather, swing you want to start that? Um, so um, you're absolutely right. These are two very predominant trends. Let me talk about the second one, and I'll just mention the, the first one. Um, we see this very playing extremely well across Europe uh, in very conservative parties, and I think we're seeing it play very well here, that uh, the Kremlin is the defender of conservative values. They're the only ones that defend against the decadence of the West, whether that's a social agenda or vast uh, change. The use of the Russian Orthodox Church is a very powerful tool uh, that is also used predominantly depending on, on the, the market. Uh, you have some um, nationalists like Dugan and others that say, you know, Moscow is the third Rome, this, this revitalization of the defender. And it, it can be very seductive uh, for those who feel uh, that uh, their values and their traditions are being assaulted by globalization or by social agendas, uh, and it's a very powerful. So people may not know that this is Kremlin-influenced. They think they're supporting that view, and as I've warned in congressional testimony that I've given, Russian malign influence is going to start looking more European and more American because they simply agree with the agenda. The first uh, statement about moral equivalence, and I, I will say, uh, for me, one of the most devastating statements that President Trump made some time ago was when he was interviewed and uh, the, the questioner said about the, the, the Kremlin kills uh, opposition people like Boris Nemtsov and others, and the president said, well, we're killers too. That moral equivalence, this gets back to Seth's book, that moral equivalence, we're no longer the good guys, we're just like you are no better than us, and if you're no better than we are, then we can sit at the table and we can come to some accommodation that's gonna look a lot like Yalta. I'll take this, you take that. This is how we divide the world. It's that moral equivalency to me that is the complete erosion of American exceptionalism, and that is the point. One, one thing to add to that too, I think to understand what one of the strategic approaches has been, and it's been, I think it's been fairly consistent in many ways since even since Cold War days, is to sow discord. And so what it means in practical terms is today is they'll be on all sides of the argument. Uh, when it comes to the Parkland shootings on gun rights, they are just as likely to be uh, pushing, whether it's bots or trolls, pro-gun rights as they are anti-gun anti rights. The, the object, part of the objective here is to, is to identify seams and vulnerabilities in the American discourse and to exploit them, and to exploit major divisions we have in dialogue. So part of the issue is to understand that in a sense it doesn't necessarily matter what Russian leaders believe, it's what they're trying to do and exploiting seems. So we've seen them on social media support through uh, proxy organizations multiple sides of a debate. And, and the goal is to sow discord. And I think until we recognize that publicly at the sort of your first and second levels, um, I think we're at a disadvantage. Yes, ma'am, I'll let, yeah. In the you. Hello, my name is Christina Pendergrast, and I was wondering 
To what extent could Russia affect us by proxy using nations they've already exerted economic and some political control over? Especially nations like Venezuela, where there are a lot of resources, where they have a lot of control, and that we get a lot of those resources from those local allies, or not necessarily allies, but partners in trade. Thank you. General Heidman, do you want that? Or? No, I think we're passing up on who wants to do it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, it, certainly Russian uh, malign influence uses pox, proxy groups extremely um, effectively. Um, they certainly, over the last four years, have worked to revitalize their former. Uh, Cold War relationships, whether that's in the Middle East, whether that's in Latin America, and certainly uh, providing uh, very generous, if, as much as they can, they're somewhat limited financial resources to keep regimes uh, alive and if they can be disruptive to U.S. interests. I think you just really see where Russian policy right now is it can disrupt and it can make sure that nothing can happen without Russia, and Syria is the perfect example, but they cannot create, they cannot right. sustain uh, a foreign policy um, approach. So it's designed to distract, keep us off balance. We need them for something. Um, and again, it's a global, it is a global approach, increasingly more regional activism in the Middle East, somewhat in Asia, a little bit in Latin America. But this is not, they, they're not able to reconstitute what they had during the Soviet Union. In, in, the, in the informational space, all right, um, the, the Russians are Americans, all right? The, the identity they assume is, is you and me, and, and they frankly don't need to outsource that to, to anywhere else to make that more effective. And as something mentioned earlier, I think, Seth, you may have, may have mentioned it. Um, they only want plausible deniability, all right? And, and in fact, uh, the fact that we know that they know that we know actually plays uh, in our mental processes as well. And so the identity they want over there, I mean, they don't, they don't, it doesn't have to be a carom shot, okay? They, they pop up in our social media as, as if we, we believe they are Americans, all right? And a lot of that is fed by they just grab American themes and memes hmm. created by our own discourse and then just ride them to the extremes to, to make us more divided than even we would otherwise be. But, but I think it has been interesting to look at along these lines. Uh, Russians have reached out to proxy organizations in North Africa, in Libya. They've reached out to, you know, one can overstate it, but they've reached out to the Taliban in Afghanistan. This is, this is an organization the U.S. continues to fight. Um, they've done a pretty good job of establishing uh, power projection in Syria, uh, supporting the regime there. They've, so, I mean, we can see the Russians also increasing their footprint in multiple locations on multiple continents. You mentioned Venezuela. We could talk about the Middle East. We could talk about North Africa, uh, among other, other locations. And I, I do think it's worth, worth, before we get too far down this road, and General Hayden, you noted this in your book, too, that uh, one can overstate the power, including yeah. the economic power of right. the Russians, too. They are not a particularly strong power. When we dealt with them in the Cold War, we were dealing with, I mean, we, we realized by the end of the 1980s it was weaker than we had anticipated. But the Russia of today is nothing like the Soviet right. Union of the 1980s. And even my, my props to them for the informational campaign, it, it's not rocket science. I mean, we're, we're, we're teeing this up for them. Uh, one of the things I got to do in the book was to actually talk to a lot of people I wouldn't otherwise have talked to. So I talked to Gary Kasparov, 
uh, former Soviet chess champion, now Russian dissident. And, and, and Gary points out, this isn't chess, it isn't even checkers, all right? It, it, it's blackjack. And, and we fundamentally aren't playing. We're, we've only got a minute left, so I'm going to ask you to reflect on this last, this last issue, which has been running throughout this whole conversation. And that is, you know, it's really not about the Russians, it's about us. Right. I mean, we are so much struggling as a nation. We don't seem to have institutions that command the credibility they did. What's it? What, what is the one thing that we should be doing as we're thinking about elections this fall and elections in two years? Mike, you? Yeah, uh, very briefly, and, and I apologize, it's very long term, it's back to civic education. It, it, it's back to fundamentally understanding how democracies work and what values are required for any democracy to function, and I, I fear we've, we've lost that. One, one positive note that I've heard from some school systems including elementary school systems, is uh, an increasing push to get their students to footnote when they write papers <laughs> for schools, where are they getting their information from. I mean, getting back to a, an education component to our youth that as they think through making arguments in elementary school and middle school and in high school, that what are the sources they're looking at? What's the plausibility of those sources so that we are educating ourselves that we need to get back to the basics, I think, of where we should be? So I'm going to thank Vladimir Putin. I'm going to thank him. Uh, in one ways, he's revitalized NATO. He has returned <laughs> us to our, our founding purpose. I'm going to thank him for giving us quite a jolt in 2016 for us to understand how precious the practice of our democracy is, but it is not an election, it is every day, and how we comport ourselves and our institutions. He has given us the wake-up call, let us not hit the snooze button, let us take this opportunity for democratic renewal, institutional renewal, and we can get back on our feet and go offense in the great spirit of Ronald Reagan. Uh, I want to say thank you. No, so we're out of time. I'm sorry. We, we're at the end. I want to say thank you to the three of you. It's been a fascinating conversation. We've had three very different cuts, but on a common theme about where are we heading as a nation. I think we're all very proud of the history America has presented to the world, that it provided a, a, a beacon uh, of optimism and, and promise for people. And I think that's still with us. But we have to stop fighting ourselves. And, you know, we're all in one boat. We ought to be rowing in the same direction <laughs> rather than hitting each other on the head with the oars. So. Would you all say thank you, please, with your applause? <laughs>